We're in a series that we're calling What Jesus Started, and that got me thinking this past week. I have two grandsons. Jeffrey just turned five and Carter's two, and they love to play hide-and-seek. To tell you the truth, they're not really that good at it. First of all, they usually hide in the same places over and over again, and they don't fully hide. I see their feet. I see their shirts. And then when I'm hiding, they cheat. They look through their hands, they don't fully hide, they leave too early, they're not very good at it. But you know, I was thinking about what Jesus started. Jesus is seeking those that are hiding. Ever since the beginning, our first ancestors, right after that first sin, they set out on this mission of hiding. And over and over again, they're hiding here, they're hiding there. And the message through the whole Bible is that God is seeking them. You know, one of the ways you could look at what Jesus started is that Jesus came to make the pictures realities. In the Old Testament, we get lots of external pictures. In the New Testament, internal realities. So if you've been reading through John, we're going to be in chapter 4 today, but if you read through John, what do the first few chapters say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, lambs, that's an external picture. Jesus the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The picture is becoming a reality. The wedding at Cana, the picture of new wine that gives joy in the old pictures of ceremonial cleansing, they're replaced with the new internal wine of the gospel. Jesus goes to the temple where there are lots of external pictures of religion and worship, and he says, I've come to make all of those pictures a reality. Now worship will be through me the ultimate place of access. And then in chapter 3, we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jesus comes to Nicodemus, and what does he say? Nicodemus, it's not really all the external rules and righteousness you're trying to get. It's the internal reality of being born again, a new start through me. So what did Jesus start? The pictures are becoming realities, and that's what we experience. Well, this morning we come to John chapter 4, another conversation where pictures become realities. Now, I've got to warn you right up front, we're going to read in John chapter 4 about a woman who lived over 2,000 years ago. She comes from a region of the world that many of you couldn't find on a map. She comes from a race that none of us are descendant of, and she has issues that we really can't relate to. And yet, if we can understand a few things about her and her life, we're going to see ourselves in her reflection, and we're going to see the reality that Jesus brings to her and to us as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4, and I'll probably read through 20-something. All right, if you have your Bible, your phone, your iPad, whatever you've got, you can follow along. If you're watching at home, you can look it up however you choose. Verse 4. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, 
Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews, Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father speaks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. That's kind of an interesting passage with lots of interesting but some strange elements. I'm going to pose a question that we're going to try to answer for the next few minutes. And it kind of fits what this passage is all about, both in the context of John and how we often live. Here's the question. For whom did Jesus come? For whom did Jesus come? If you read through John's gospel up until this point, he's interacted with a whole bunch of people. So in John chapter 1, he he kind of interacts with his cousin, John the Baptist. In chapter 2, at the wedding, he interacts with his mother. At the end of chapter 2, he he interacts with the religious leaders at the temple. In John chapter 3, he interacts with Nicodemus, a religious leader. So far, we kind of say, yeah, we expect Jesus came for family, friends, religious people. But then you come to John chapter 4, and she doesn't fit the script, right? For whom did Jesus come? He came for family and friends and religious people and do-gooders, but he couldn't have come for people like this woman. Let me explain. We're going to work through the passage with the same outline we used a couple weeks ago. I didn't have a lot of time, so we'll just kind of use the same outline. But it actually fits. Jesus is having a conversation, and we're going to talk about the context of the conversation just to kind of introduce the players so you know what's going on. Then the content of the conversation, a few concluding lessons, and then we're done. Well, first of all, the context. We're told in the passage that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, technically, that's not true. You see, uh, 
Judea was in the southern part of the you know, promised land. Galilee was in the northern part. And when Jesus was alive, Samaria was in between. But a lot of Jews, they didn't like to go through Samaria. It was kind of like if you're in Pennsylvania, you have to get to New York. You have to go through New Jersey. You know what? If it wasn't for the shore, what good is New Jersey, right? It, it, it's a place, but you have to go through it to get nine. And if you're from Jersey, you know exactly what I'm saying, right? Now, there is a way to get to New York without going through New Jersey. Go north until you hit New York and Cutter. It's kind of way out of the way. And lots of Jewish leaders, particularly in Jesus' day, that's what they would do. Rather than go through Samaria, they would go around Samaria, adding miles to their trip because they didn't want to go to Samaria and associate with the people there. Why is that? Well, it goes all the way back in the history in the Old Testament. If you remember, David and Solomon, they rule like one kingdom, right? Israel's one big nation. But soon after Solomon, the nation divides. And you get Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Well, eventually the Assyrians come in and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And what they do is they exile. They transport most of the Israelites to other countries. And that's where we get the expression, the 10 lost tribes. They just are taken to other parts of the world and they assimilate and they're basically obliterated. But the Assyrians were pretty smart. They left some of the Israelites in Israel because they knew where things were, knew where the wells were, knew how to crop things were. They left some, but they imported people from around the empire in. And so all of the people in Israel were soon intermarrying with other people, and they were considered by people in Judah half-breeds, unclean, unworthy of God. They were forbidden to come and worship in the temple because they're half-breeds, right? They're no good. Well, what they do, what pretty much any people would do, they build their own temple in Samaria. They say, we don't need your temple down there in Jerusalem. We don't need to come there and put up with all your uh, you know, gossip and slander about us. We've got our own temple. Do you know what the Jews did in Judah? They went up and destroyed their temple. They knocked it down. They destroyed it. So you can tell. Not a lot of love lost between these two people, right? Samaritans and Jews, they hated each other. This woman who comes to the well is a Samaritan. You pick up some of that hatred when she says, well, wait a minute, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How in the world are you asking me for a drink? Think about it. Jewish folks would rather almost die of thirst rather than drink from a cup that Samaritans had drunk from and vice versa. Samaritans weren't, weren't going to drink from Jewish cups either. Jesus shows up and he starts a conversation with this woman. Not only that, did you notice uh, in the verse that we read about what time it was? You notice that? What time was it? Just see if you're awake. What time was it? It was noon. It was noon. Now, uh, if you know anything about noon, you know at noon, you know the sun's pretty high in the sky, which means it may not be as hot as it's going to be that day, but it's pretty darn hot, right? And I'm ready for the heat. Let it come. Going to the well and drawing water, that was women's work. But they wouldn't go at noon. They'd go early in the morning. They'd go at night. They'd go in the cool of the day. But they didn't just go when it was cooler. Going to the well was kind of like a social event. All the women went together, right? And they'd hang out and they'd talk about their kids and talk about their job, talk about their husbands, right? Not in that order. They would share. All, it, it's kind of like a relational time, a social time. Nobody goes at noon. 
This woman goes at noon. Why do you think she'd want to go at noon? Because she wants to be alone. She's heard the snickers. She turns her back and she hears what they're saying. She is socially separated from everybody in society. They're looking down on her. Now, we're not told if five husbands have died or whether they're divorced. We don't know the reason, but we do know she's looked down on. If her husbands all died, then she must be cursed somehow from God. If they're divorced, then maybe she isn't good enough for them. Whatever it is, she is not an upstanding citizen. She is a wretched outcast, separated from everybody. It would be like you doing your grocery shopping at Giant at three in the morning. I'm not even sure they're open. I know Starbucks is not open at three. Why would you go to Giant at three in the morning? Well, you'd go if you want to be alone. You go when no one else is there. This woman goes to the well at noon when no one else goes. She does not want to see anybody, talk to anybody. And here she can't catch a break. She shows up at the well expecting to be alone. There's a guy there. He's a Jewish guy. And of course, he's asking her for something. Not just socially uh, separated spiritually sinful. It's kind of hinted at, and we just talked about it. She really is an outcast. She's an outcast socially. She's an outcast religiously, but mostly she's an outcast morally. Now, you've got to understand, the Jews in Jesus' day, and lots of us still today, we often want to kind of construct a ladder, and we do construct ladders in our minds, and those people that are really good, we put at the top of the ladder, and we put ourselves kind of up there, right? And everybody else, kind of the filthy, creepy people, we put them kind of at the bottom. Everyone would know this woman was kind of at the bottom of the ladder. Religious leaders like Nicodemus from chapter 3, he's at the top of the ladder. Jesus comes to the well and starts a conversation with this woman at the bottom of the ladder. Jesus, an itinerant rabbi, in people's minds, maybe he's not at the top, but he's certainly not in the low position she is. And he strikes up a conversation. That's a little bit of the context. Well, how does the content of the conversation go? Well, to kind of give you some hooks to hang things on, uh, I think the conversation unfolds in four stages. All right, so you can kind of track them out along with me. I'll tell you what they are, then when we go through them, you'll have a drawer to put the junk in, right? Phase one, he asks her a favor. Stage two, he shifts lanes and all of a sudden talks about living water rather than well water. What the heck is living water? Stage three, he says, oh, well, and when I tell you more about the living water, go get your husband. I'll tell both of you. Stage three. And then lastly, who am I? I am. Four stages, four phases we'll kind of walk through. First of all, he asks for a drink. They've already played with that idea a little bit. But think about it. Jesus comes. He has nothing to draw with. And if the woman actually pulls the water up for him, he, this Jewish religious teacher, is going to drink from a cup or from a water container that the woman has also drunk from herself. She's flabbergasted by that. Not only is she a Samaritan, she's a woman, she's an outcast. He's a religious rabbi. He's an insider. He asks for a drink. He starts a conversation. Now again, in, under the sovereignty of God, do you really think that um, this is all happening by coincidence? Do you really think that the disciples go into town to buy food and Jesus is a little more tired than they are, so he's got to stay at the well? No, something's going on. What do we say? Here's a woman hiding from everybody in her town. 
Here's a woman even hiding from herself and probably not telling herself the truth. She shows up at a well and she can't hide because this religious rabbi is there. And here's God, here's Jesus seeking. Hey, can I have a drink? She's been hiding most of her life and Jesus is seeking and she's not going to be able to hide from him. Well, that really brings us to phase two. She makes a lot of excuses. Well, you're, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't really share drinks. And, and then Jesus shifts lanes, right? He's all the way over here in the, you know, the slow lane. He jumps over to the fast lane. And here's what he says. Um, yeah, I know I asked you for a drink. But you know what? If you knew who you're speaking to, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. What the heck is Does that mean it has, like, germ, bacteria in it, something swimming around? That stuff you learn in biology? Uh, no, no, no. There were different kinds of water, right? There's cistern water where you kind of collect water and it sits and easily gets stagnant. There's well water where the water is kind of still. Then there's spring water and stream water. That's what living water meant. Living water meant it's running water. So Jesus is saying, you come out to this well where the water's kind of sitting there. Maybe there's a spring down there. But if you knew who I really was, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living, I'd give you flowing water. And then he says, and this living water that I give, once you drink it, it kind of grows inside of you and be, becomes a big fountain where other people are blessed by it and you get eternal life. Now, what do you think she's thinking? I think she's confused, right? Like, is Jesus promising to put plumbing in her house? Like living water? Is he going to point out a stream nearby? Does he know where a spring is? Remember what I said earlier? What did Jesus come to do? To make the pictures realities. Now, we know that the Samaritans didn't believe the whole Old Testament. They only believe the first five books of Moses, right? That's called the Torah. They only believe Torah. And so they didn't believe what the other later prophets said, but Jesus knew what the other prophets said. And when Jesus shifts lanes, he brings up to this woman a picture that he is making a reality. Let me show you from Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, years before Here's what Jeremiah wrote about living water. Jesus knew this, and he's teaching the woman. Here's what Jeremiah writes on God's behalf. This is God speaking. God says, my people have committed two sins. Now notice the order. Notice the progression. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, God says, the spring of living water. There it is, right? They have forsaken me, God, the spring of living water. They've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've turned their backs on God, the spring of living water. And then they go out and dig cisterns. They dig holes in the ground, hoping somehow to catch the runoff from the world. Hoping somehow to catch fleeting joy, fleeting happiness, comfort, pleasure, trying to catch some of it in this cistern. But what does God say? Their cisterns are broken. Even if they could capture some of the water of the world, it's going to sink right through the cracks in the cisterns. It's not going to work. Notice, step one, here's God, the source of living water. I'm going to forsake him, turn my back on the source of living water. There is no living water anywhere else. 
If I turn my back on God, the source of living water, and I go to find living water anywhere else, I'm going on a never-ending journey. And we're told that when you try to dig something to catch the water of this world for a few minutes, it will be very fleeting. The water will sink right... That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? What water are you trying to catch in your cisterns? What cisterns have you dug? We know a little bit about the woman's cisterns. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we all dig cisterns, right? Maybe you're trying to catch a little bit of the water of the world by digging a cistern. And if you could just get the right amount of money into that cistern. But here's what happens. Right? You've seen what the market's been doing last week. I mean, broken cistern, right? It runs right through. Trying to do it through pleasure, trying to do it through a resume, trying to do it through a job, trying to do it with a relationship with another person. What happens? We dig these cisterns trying to capture the water of the world, but the water of the world was never intended and it can't satisfy us. And even if it goes into the cistern, it doesn't stay there long until it goes right through the cracks in the bottom and we're left with nothing. Does that story sound familiar? When you turn your back on God, the source of living water, and you dig a hole somewhere trying to capture a little bit of the water of the world, you may get it for a fleeting second, but boy, it's going to run out of that and evaporate pretty quickly. Isn't it? Jesus is offering to this woman God, isn't he? Think back to what he says in John 4. If you knew who you're talking to, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you living water. But in Jeremiah 2, what's the living water? It's not a what, it's a who. The living water is God. Jesus says, if you knew who you're speaking to, you would ask and I would give you God. I'd give you God. She doesn't get it quite yet, but Jesus isn't done, right? She's still hiding. Jesus still seeking. Jesus shifts lanes again, and this one's most uncomfortable for her. She, she kind of asked for the living water. Right? She's, she's intrigued. I want some of this living water. Why does she want it? So she doesn't have to go to the well anymore. She doesn't have to hide in shame anymore. She could stay at home, right? Maybe the spring will come right into the house. She won't have to go through a... So then Jesus says, uh, phase three, well, look, I got an idea. Rather than just tell you about the living water, go get your husband and I'll tell both of you. He walks right up to where she's hiding and he pulls the curtain back, doesn't he? Just like him. That's not to be a nuisance. That's to be loving. Because you've got to pull your mask down in order for the mercy of the gospel to come in. So Jesus goes right up to her hiding spot, pulls back the curtain, and says, I see exactly who you are, where you've been, what you've done, and I'm still here seeking. Wow. I find it interesting, but very similar to what we do. As soon as Jesus says, I found you, she wants to start a religious argument. Why? She wants to hide again, right? Jesus says, I see you. I know where you are. Go get your husband. She pulls the curtain, right? Jesus knows where she is. She pulls the curtain shut and says, um, yeah, but see, you Jews say you need to worship in Jerusalem, 
But when the Pentateuch ended, when Deuteronomy ends, the tabernacle is in Gerizim. It's not in Jerusalem. So we think it's, well, she wants a fight because it's painful to be found when you're hide and seek, isn't it? She'll do anything rather than be found. So Jesus gives her a little theology lesson. In a nutshell, he says, yeah, you don't understand. Part of my mission is to make geographical location obsolete. I've come on the mission of having geography be insignificant. Gerizim, Jerusalem, temple, that, no big deal anymore. I'm the place of access. I'm the place where heaven and earth meet. I'm the place where people that are hiding can come clean and find acceptance with a loving father. That's me. That's me. You notice in the conversation, Jesus is kind of moved, and she's picking up different facets of who he is. The first picture she, uh, she understands of Jesus, he's a, he's a requesting man, right? They always want something. Then he's an insightful teacher. Then he's a knowing prophet. He's not done yet, though, is he? She then says, yeah, I don't know about this whole geography thing, but I do know this, I do know this. One day, we've been taught Messiah will come. Messiah means king, right? Priest, anointed. One day, the king will come. And when he comes, he'll explain all this to us. What's she saying? Then I'll be able to take what you're saying, fit it with what, his, what he's saying, and then I'll be able to figure it out. And what does Jesus say? Here's the first I am statement of John. Miss, I am the Messiah. What I've just said is spirit and truth. I've come and I'm explaining and paying for that acceptance and access to be made permanent. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It begins with an inquisitive man at a well and it ends with Jesus saying, I am the king. I'm here. And just like we sang, and Andrew said, but our king didn't come first to sit on a throne. The king came first to die on a cross. The sitting on the throne thing comes. But the dying on a cross thing comes first. And you know what's beautiful about this passage? Remember the question? For whom did Jesus come? Yeah, he came for cousins and family members, and he came for religious people, and he came for irreligious people too. He comes for this. And he would say, how do we know he comes for her? Because he knows everything about her, and he's still there seeking. He knows where she's been. He knows her past. You know, he knows what she's loving, what, what she's been doing. He knows every detail about her life, and he's still there finding her, calling her to himself. And rather than pull the curtain shut, he wants her to open the curtain wide so his mercy can run in. Let's tease out a couple of concluding lessons. Uh, here's the first one. Only Jesus gives what will fully satisfy. Isn't that the point of the story? Only Jesus gives what fully satisfies. And isn't it an apt metaphor that we dig cisterns in this world, right? Trying to capture a little bit of the joy, a little bit of the comfort, a little bit of the praise, a little bit of the feel good. We want to, and so we dig a hole hoping to, to capture it so we can keep it. 
but the cistern can't hold it. They're cracking, it runs right through. You may get it for a second or so, or maybe for a weekend, but it's gone. But Jesus says, I'll give you living water that'll well up inside of you to eternal life. You know, when John talks about eternal life, he means two things. Quantity of life, right? Eternal. And quality of life to the maximum. He gives living water. He gives God that fully satisfies. Oh, but just like the woman, I told you if, you, if you know something about her, you know something about yourself. Just like her, we run to things that never fully satisfy, right? We're too busy di digging cisterns to look, look behind and realize that only God is the source of living water. Only Jesus can supply what fully satisfies. We're too busy digging our cisterns to pick our head up and look around and acknowledge the reality. I love the fact that John uh, puts chapter 3 and chapter 4 together. You couldn't be more different than Nicodemus and this woman, could you? Nicodemus is really religious. She's irreligious. Nicodemus is a rule keeper. She's a rule breaker. Nicodemus is moral. She's, prob she's probably immoral. Nicodemus is connected and respected. She's disrespected and disconnected. It couldn't be more different. For whom did Jesus come? He came for Nicodemus. And he came for the woman whose name we don't even know. And everybody else on that continuum. We keep hiding. He keeps seeking. That's amazing, isn't it? My guess is when you play hide and seek with your kids or grandkids, if they hide really well and you can't find them, eventually you give up. Right? Go sit down and wait till they come out. God never gives up. You think you've hidden so good he can't find you? He keeps coming. For the moral and the immoral, the religious and the irreligious, the do-gooders and the do-badder, Jesus comes for everybody on the continuum. He's seeking. Now, the seeking isn't eternal. It's as long as we're alive, but he's coming. Don't turn your back on Jesus, the source of living water, and run to your broken cistern that can't hold water. Turn around and get found. The last lesson... Jesus brings satisfaction. That's the, you, you know what I love? What I love about the story is we know the woman gets it. Remember I said at the beginning, what did Jesus come to do? What did he start? To make the pictures realities. Here's what I love. She run, you read the rest of the chapter later. She runs back into her hometown. And she says to everybody, hey, come on out, right? She's experienced some of the satisfaction. Now she's on mission. She goes back to get the townspeople and notice she does not use the picture. She doesn't say, come outside the city to the well. I found living water. That's not what she says. What does she say? Come with me. I want to introduce you to the man who knows everything about me. Could he be the Messiah? She's made the transition from the picture to the reality. She knows Jesus is the living water. So where are you in that journey today? Is Jesus just a man intruding on your life? Is he an insightful teacher that says really cool things that maybe you should live by? Is he a prophet that knows all about you, as frightening as that is? Or is he your loving Savior who keeps seeking, even though we keep hiding? It's the sanest thing you can do in the world. Look at your cistern and ask what she needed to ask. ask what, answer what Jesus asked. 
Doesn't he say to her, well, you've been digging these broken cisterns for a while now. How's that working for you? How's what you're doing is working? How's what you're doing working for you? Give up the cistern. Turn around. Jesus is still seeking. Still wants to find. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for, uh, for this strange account that on the surface of it is so different than our context and our reality and the life that we live. And yet underneath the surface, we see ourselves in the story. We see ourselves continually hiding and wearing masks. And we see Jesus, our loving Savior, the Messiah, continually seeking. Lord, help us to do the wise, sane thing this morning. Help us to stop digging the cistern, turn around, and get found by the one who's seeking. We pray in his name. Amen. 